going to be this morning, page 866 in our church Bibles. And while you're turning there, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. In just a moment, while you're turning there, let me give you a, a, a proven strategy for the Everyone One campaign, where every one of us do our very best to invite someone to an Easter weekend at West Coast Chapel. So a long time ago, um, all through high school, I never dated anybody. So the senior prom came and my parents made me ask uh, someone out for that evening. And it just happened to be, believe it or not, the, the daughter of the mayor of our town. And so because I was made to, 18-year-old boy being made to ask, I did what I was told. And, and here's the line I want you to remember. This is what I said to her. I got on the phone, called her, and I said, hello, you don't want to come to the senior prom with me, do you? And she said, yes. So there's your strategy. When you're talking to people, it's one, it's one for one. You got a 50% chance of getting it right, right? You don't want to come to an Easter weekend at West Cohasset Chapel with me, do you? It worked for me. So you feel like reading verse 5 here? Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Amen. Let's, let's bow together and, and pray. And, and while you're bowing, if you have any questions today about what you've heard or about Christ or the Bible, please, please come forward at the end of our time and I'll be happy to try to answer those questions. Well, Father, we know that there is no one like you. And we thank you for that reality and we, we thank you that we come to this setting with a very proper sense of our absolute dependence on you. And we also come to this setting with an equally grateful sense that we are accepted by you, not on the basis of our personal performance, but only and always on the infinite righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who who gave himself up for us by his suffering and death on the cross. So as we study your word this morning, knowing and feeling our great need, we would humbly, Father, ask you for the, for the great necessary help of the Holy Spirit to speak and to listen and to, to understand these things all to your appointed end. And so we would ask for these things and so much more, so much more for, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, God alone is the final judge of a person's true experience of salvation. However, the Bible, God's Word, is the final judge of how we should describe and understand and proclaim that salvation. The former protects us from sin and witch hunts and thinking much, much more of ourselves than we dare ought to. The latter protects us from a privatized gospel, a made-up gospel, which treats the once and for all given gospel like a uh, wax nose. So it fits the person's particular scene and circumstance and morality and so their mind. 
Now, in these four verses and those that follow, Jude could have not been much clearer on just what is a true profession of faith and what is a false profession of faith. And he does it in two ways. One is positive. The other is negative. The first way is positive. Verse 2, you can see there if your Bible is open. Verse 2, in which he gives three true marks, true of every genuine Christian. Verse 2, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Called, loved, kept. That's the positive. Three marks of every genuine Christian where the weight is placed on what God has done in Christ. The second is the negative. That's verse 4. And in verse 4, he gives two marks of those who are still in condemnation. In other words, those in the church, and that's the context here in Jude, they're in the church, but they have a false profession of faith. Verse 4, these godless individuals. Do you see it there? Which is another way of saying these Christless individuals, which is another way of saying these self-ruled individuals, which is another way of saying these, these lawless individuals. So these godless individuals have two marks that reveal that they are still in condemnation. One is a moral problem. They pervert grace. Verse 4, who change the grace of God into a license for immorality. And then the other is a theological problem. They deny Jesus Christ as the only sovereign Lord. So Jude, in just a very few sentences, is quite clear. Three marks of every genuine Christian called, loved, kept. Two marks of a false profession, pervert grace, and Jesus isn't king. In other words, for Jude, a faith that justifies is a faith that begins to sanctify. For the gospel says that Christ's finished work at Calvary is so powerfully good. I mean, something happened when we gave our lives to Christ. The gospel is so powerfully good that not only is the Christian a new creation no longer under condemnation, but the Christian is also a, a new creation no longer under sin's domination. And that gospel reality, if it's the true gospel given, will work itself out understandably in differing degrees so that none of us will be like the moral police for Jesus. He, he can do a perfectly great job without himself. It will work itself out in differing degrees, but it will work itself out in every genuine believer. So that grace does not mean I can do what I like anytime I like and still go to heaven because grace does not mean license. For the grace of God gives us a license not to do horrible and evil things, but it frees us from doing horrible and evil things. Therefore, God's grace is not subjective to uh, cultural trends or morality, whether it be right-leaning morality or left leaning morality. His grace is not a cloak for unrepentive self-indulgence. God's grace in Jesus is not those things. But grace does mean forgiveness in our repentance. Grace does mean that we're sin abounds and we should thank God for this as Christians. We're sin abounds. Grace superabounds. And grace does mean, since I'll be troubled with indwelling sin till my last day, sometimes losing, sometimes winning, I must never glory in my flesh. I must never put any confidence in my flesh, but I must glory in Jesus Christ. 
Because grace means that I, now that I'm a regenerate believer born again in Christ, the sin which, which in the past dominated me has been dethroned, but it hasn't been destroyed. It's prowling around all the time and every believer and bringing back those sinful desires that we had hoped that we had seen the last of. So sometimes, again, sometimes we win. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes our, even our most godly thoughts are just perverted and twisted. By that indwelling sin, so they become nothing but pride-perverted aspects of our Christian existence. Therefore, since grace says a lifelong conflict with indwelling sin is what I must expect, I do not rely on the moral, my moral rectitude to keep me in the right with God. Because again, sometimes I'm winning and sometimes I'm losing. And when we're losing, where do we go? So we do not rely on our moral rectitude to keep us in the right with God, but we rely always and only on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes me and that keeps me right with God, which the thought comes to mind. That's why Paul said at least five times in the New Testament, if there's going to be any boasting from the Christian at all, any at all, it is only going to be about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it accomplished because of my Sin. And so since Jesus is our sovereign Lord, verse 4b, what he said, he has said, and what he has done, he has done, he is Lord. So then Jude would say, every genuine believer is not an anarchist, you know, a person who rebels and won't get on the line that Jesus says is, is, is as the only sovereign and Lord and King. I mean, Jesus has the right and the might to lead us as, as his followers so genuine believers are not anarchists, and genuine believers are not antinomianists. That would be against God's law, against the moral law of God, as we mostly understand in the Ten Commandments or the laws of Christ. Because every genuine believer, if they're a genuine believer, is a child of God. Ralph Davis, great quote, helps us understand the right use of the moral law of God. Right? Because if you, would, you ask yourself the question, of all the Ten Commandments, which one do you think we should toss? None of them. Ralph Davis. He, he begins to say how the moral law of God leads us to Jesus Christ. That's the chief. That's Galatians 3. It's supposed to lead us to Jesus Christ. And then he goes along and says this. I know that some Christians have an allergic reaction when they are told that they are subject to God's moral law. This, they fear, is legalism and an effort of salvation by works. But that fear misunderstands the function of the law. The law comes in the context of grace. Yahweh lays down the pattern in Exodus. He delivers his people, then he demands. He works his redemption before he sets down his requirements. He first sets Israel free and then tells them how that freedom is to be enjoyed and maintained. Glad obedience to God's moral law is simply a logical act of worship. So as you think about the full gospel then, we can say with absolute certainty that every Christian will believe the righteous, and this is so important as we move along in the text this morning, the righteous will live by faith, a faith that is not alone, but a faith alone that saves. Again, the righteous live by faith, a faith that is not alone, but a faith in Christ alone that saves. And again, that takes us to verse 5 and following because the underlying problem here of those whose condemnation was written about long ago, verse 4, 
as we get along, it's not about sex. It's about unbelief. Because the three examples that Jude gives us, ultimately the underlying theme of all of those, uh, of those horrible examples is unbelief. That's their problem. They will not believe God. They have no faith. And the just live by faith. Manton. Unbelief is the mother of all sins. Now, is there a sin which so dishonors God as much as unbelief? Because unbelief calls into question the very nature and the very character, and we could say the very love of God. Unbelief calls into question his mercy, his tender mercy, his wise rule, his generous promises that some of us lean on every day. His righteousness, his justice and goodness and truth, all suspect in unbelief. 1 John 5.10, whoever does not believe God has made God out to be a liar. You see, what was happening in Jude's day, and of course what's happening in ours, is a new morality. And if you have a new morality, then you're always going to have a new theology, right? New morality, you need a new theology. For when men and, when and women try to justify their sin... Before a holy God, apart from the faith in Christ, there's all, they're always going to have to rework their faith. The faith that God once and for all said that we must entrust ourselves to. So they're going to have to say that God's word is a lie. And they're going to have to tinker with atonement. And they're going to have to tinker with sin. In other words, a new theology. But in this case, what makes it so horrible, of course, in the case of, of our society... That that horrible mess doesn't come from outside the church in. It's actually coming from inside the church and working itself in the church and, of course, outside the church. And so Jude says, enough. Enough. Contend. Now, obviously, in the context of Jude, these, these unbelievers posing as believers somehow snuck themselves into the fellowship. See, so as a pastor, the first question I had was, well, how did that happen? And so one of the things I thought of is the parable of, of the sower that's in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And one of the things that kept people um, low-brained about these things, if you would, is what Jesus said. He said that life's worries and life's riches and life's pleasures and the deceitfulness of wealth begin to come into the seed that was planted in the heart and it chokes it. And it makes it essentially dead, unfruitful. And then the new theology comes in. It seeps in and tries to change the once and for all given theology, the once and for all given gospel. And then God is made out to be a liar. And then God's rule is made out to be a bit dated. But that is a distorted gospel. And the freedom to disagree with the Bible's gospel is an illusion. The judgment, unfortunately, will make that clear. P.T. Forsythe put it this way. The purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. So that's what Jude does. In verse 5, the opening lines, he begins to tell them there. Do you see it? Although you already know this, I want to remind you. In other words, he begins to tell them not something new that they need to remember, but he tells them something old that they never should forget. And so he gives three examples. Verse 5, unbelieving Israelites. Verse 6, the angels of Noah's day. And verse 7, the perverse cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So three examples 
of an ugly reminder of the future of those who pervert grace, pervert the gospel, and deny Jesus Christ as the only sovereign Lord and King. So let's get to the first example, the people of Israel there. Verse 5, you know this, you already know that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. You see, if you have the NIV, the footnote there, if you run it down to the bottom, footnote C, it says that some manuscripts have the word Jesus and not the word Lord. So Jesus is their deliverer. And Luther says in his commentary, there were thousands upon thousands of ancient Israelites 600,000 plus, 20 years of age and above males, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, were found to have survived when they were numbered post-entry into the promised land. So there were thousands upon thousands who were part of the great church of Christ in the wilderness, but they didn't trust Jesus for themselves. Now, Paul will give us two examples. The New Testament will give us two examples. One in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll read now, and and the other, which we'll we'll read at the end of this first point. 1 Corinthians 10, 2. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank from the spiritual rock, and it's referring to the children of Israel that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, and these things serve as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. So they deceived themselves. They were filled with unbelief. Jesus saved them from the bondage of Egypt. Jesus fed them quite well in the wilderness. You can read about that, Exodus chapter 7, Numbers 11, 13, and 14. But, but the first chance they had, they grumbled against Jesus. They grumbled about his care and his rule and his service. And they dropped themselves, Numbers 25, into sexual immorality and idol worship. Even though that they were promised a promised land by the one who had rescued them from Pharaoh's land. And you know the story. Moses sends 12 men on recon. They were to survey the land that they were about to invade. The report came back. The land was very fertile. The land was well fortified. Numbers 13, 28. But the people who live there are powerful, well fortified, and very large. And despite the encouragements of Joshua and Caleb, right? This is a paraphrase. You guys, God promised us this land. God is for us. We can do this. Numbers 14, 8 and 9. Don't stay in your unbelief. Don't be a rebel. But they said no. They said, we do not believe God. And God says to them, Numbers 14, not one of the men who saw my glory, 600,000 plus, and the miraculous signs performed in Egypt and the desert, but who disobeyed and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt, despising Jesus, will ever see it. And of course, they never did see it. Now, Now, what's the point? The point is, here is a picture, an Old Testament picture of a persevering salvation. And the point is essentially this. The way they lived and the way they decided is everything we need to know about them. It's no different than us. The the way we live and, and the way we decide tells us everything we need to know. Unbelief and a rebel way and no repentance. We will not trust you, God. We will not obey you. God, sound familiar? Does it sound like the rebels in the church here in Jude who secretly slipped in? Jesus isn't Lord, he's not king, and we can do whatever we want with his grace. So they were part of the church, but they were not part of God's forever family. And they were making a mess out of everything. 
Again, does that sound familiar in our time and place? We're, we're in the church of Jesus Christ, not, not outside the church, but inside the church of Jesus Christ. What Jesus says about life and what he says about death, what he says about his death, what about, he says about sex and love and salvation and forgiveness and mission. Many say, you know, we've, we've changed, times have changed, so we'll rearrange the truth. Again, we'll, we'll either rearrange it leaning right conservatively or we'll rearrange it leaning left liberally. Augustine, a long time ago, said this. If you keep what you like in the gospel and take out what you don't like in the gospel, it's not the gospel that you believe in, but it's yourself. So the Israelites experience all of God's goodness. He rescued them out of the exodus, he, or out of Egypt. He, they saw and experienced God's power. They, they drank and ate all those things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. They saw and experienced miracles for themselves, yet they still faced God's destruction. They were destroyed. You see that word, verse 5? It's the exact same word that Jesus uses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not apalumi, shall not perish. That's the word. Shall not be destroyed. And we know what Jesus was saying in John 3.16. It's the same application here. Privilege does not grant immunity. No one comes out of the womb a Christian. We must be born again. We must believe. So the Israelites were smacked in the middle of two realities. One past, one present. Past, Jesus saved them from their bondage in Exodus. Present, Jesus promised them that he would lead them to this permanent salvation in the promised land. So the big question is, what are they going to do? Are they going to believe and behave? Are they going to trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey? Or are they going to refuse and rebel? They refuse and rebel. They do not believe. They have no faith. And God said, he said it to Abraham in the Old Testament, and he says it many different times in the New. The righteous, the just, shall live by faith. John Stott. Here surely is where Jude is taking us. For we too lie between two great events in history. Behind us in the cross, which provides the only possible way of escape from the judgment that lies before us. And the only way to gain benefit is to believe it now. But there are people in Christ's church who look and sound like the people of God, but who will not be saved on that last day because they rebel against God's promises and rule. Like the Israelites in the desert, they do not believe. And in consequence, they face judgment. That was the case in the wilderness. It was the case in Jude's day. And it will be the consequence in ours. So I said one example was 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3, which kind of, in this wonderful way, it gives us the doctrine of perseverance of genuine Christians believing faithfully to the end. Today, verse 7 of Hebrews 3, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. Question, were these people in the rebellion? No, but you see what the Hebrew writer is doing? He's just making this kind of like a metaphysical reality during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. The rest is another way of saying they're not converted. They're not going to experience the, the blessing of my promises. 
Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? Yes. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Yes. And to whom did God swear oath that they would never enter his rest if, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief. That's the first point, the people of Israel, verse 5. Now we go on to, to just admittedly a strange thing. The angels of heaven, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, those he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So here's Jude's second example that he gives to us of what happens in unbelief. So we come to a time and a place where the supernatural and natural order, if you would, collide. Now the early church understood this passage from verse 6, always referring to Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And there were lustful angels who were essentially, believe it or not, sleeping around. And that little story was the precursor to Noah and the ark. So, so see how up to date we are? The movie just opened this weekend. So I haven't seen it. I plan on going to see it. I like the Russell Crowe. I think he's a good actor. So now we see the behind the scenes story. Now, some in recent years have said this story is not about a particular group of fallen angels, but all the fallen angels. But of course, the problem with that is is that there are some angels who are actually demons who are doing their evil work now. So, so verse 6 can't refer to the fall of all angels. So the early church understood the verse 6 as these angels who have been given a trust, they had a realm, they, they were given positions of authority, but they left their post for their own ungodly reasons. In fact, and again, this is a, a mystery, they left heaven for, for lust on earth. In other words, because they had been given such authority and power and trust by God, they determined that they could do what they like. Sound familiar? Verse 4a. They could do what they like, with whom they like, in any realm they like, and it's okay with God. So these angels were essentially itching with lust, and they were rejecting the authority of Christ. And so these angels did not keep to their place. And actually, it's hard to see it in the English. It's easier to see it in the Greek, but there's a play on words that Jude writes. They couldn't keep to their place. So because they couldn't keep their place, as they were told, Christ, King, Christ will keep them in their place. And so the reality here is that they, what they did was so wicked and so offensive to Jesus Christ that he essentially fast-tracked their punishment. And so he bounds them with chains, eternal chains, and awaiting their final sentencing on the great day. And here's the key, in darkness. So, so there's no more sensual sight reality for these, these evil angels. You know, the eyes is, what, is the part of the deal that got them in trouble. So in God's wisdom, he keeps them in the dark forever. Now, let me explain it like this. They had the wiggles, the angels did. Jesus Christ pinned them down. They couldn't keep their place. They rebelled. So Christ kept them in place, and he awaits now, they await now their final sentencing. 
Now, if you're going to be honest to the modern ear, that's, you know, that sounds a bit strange. I mean, it does sound a bit strange. We're not used to thinking about these things, especially in, in the world that we live in. But, but I want to give you a line of thinking that I think will be helpful. So if someone says, well, Jeepers Creepers, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen now. And if it doesn't happen now, then it, sh- it didn't happen then. But it's a myth. It's, you know, it's a kind of a grim fairy story meant to keep us in line, right? It's a fairy story. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to consider the difference between what is timeless and applicable and what is unique and unrepeatable in the Bible. Unique and unrepeatable. Rebel angels leave their posts in heaven to indulge in lust on earth, and Jesus reacts in judgment. He binds them with everlasting chains, keeps them in darkness because it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Unique and unrepeatable. It doesn't need to happen again because the judgment was full and firm and it's awaiting that final end. Unique and unrepeatable, just like Pentecost, just like the incarnation, just like the resurrection, just like the ascension. Second then, then then what is timeless and applicable? What's the application that Jude is trying to make? Well, it's clear if you think about the whole context. There's people in the church who infected the church. They, They think that because they're very powerful and because they're very influential, that they can get away with their rebel behavior forever. And Jude says no. No one will get away with anything. Angels are humans. No one is going to get away with anything in their denying Jesus Christ. Whether it be through godless immorality, you know, sexual perversion, or unbelief. Because the line of thinking is real simple. If even the most trusted, powerful angels are subject to God's judgment, and they are, what chance do mere humans have? And that's the point. Jude is telling the church. He's assuring the church. By these, admittedly, this wild example, these, these wicked rebels, they're going to be brought to an end. It was written about long ago. The people of Israel, verse 5, the angels of heaven, verse 6, the cities of the plain, verse 7. You see it there in a similar way to these angels, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Again, in the Greek, I only refer to it because I think it would be helpful. It would read, and they went after different flesh. They serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So, so you see that phrase, they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, or they went after uh, different flesh. So for those of you in the know, you know that, that as recent years, the revisionists have come along and taken the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah for reasons that are probably understood, They said that that story is not really a story of God's judgment on a sexually perverted, sodomizing male society that that suffered from lazy indifference to their fellow human beings, but the story is rather a a breach of of just um, social courtesies. This is what they argue. I'm not lying here. They say that in Genesis 19.5, which has the phrase, bring them out so that we may have sex with them, they say that that phrase has been misinterpreted for thousands of years, and they say that that phrase is nothing more than than rude behavior towards two foreign men, you know, social graces and not sodomizing lust. And the reason why they say that is the word yada, which is the word for sex, which is always translated sex, mostly means to know. So to have a relationship with someone. 
And so they say that word can't be um, uh, interpreted that way because it's social graces, again, and not sodomizing lust. But the problem with that is the vast majority of times in Genesis, in fact, I think in every time that word is translated, it's always in the context of human sexuality. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve. Yada is the word, and Eve conceived. If you know someone, they're only going to be able to conceive if you, you know, if you really know someone. So they say, sorry about that, they say, let us uh, get in there so that we can have social contact with these people. That's what they're prepared to say. And of course, for thousands of years, let us get in there so that we can do horrible things to those two men. Because as you read the whole story, the way they interpret it is a horrible breach of, of, of just general rules of interpretation. The remaining context bears it out. But we have to be fair, right? We have to be fair. The sin of homosexuality was not the only reason that God was going to destroy these cities on the plain, this Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. They were arrogant. They were overfed. They were unconcerned. That's the sin of Assyria. That's kind of listless living, uh, un, unpurposeful living. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So those were the two reasons God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. One was the perversion. And second was just the listlessness and the carelessness of their lives. They took all the good things that God gave them and they just wasted them. But still the Bible says, Genesis 19.5, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house in order to have sex with the two angels who had come to visit Lot. So when you read that, you can't believe it. You know, a horde of men, a whole, whole city, so twisted, young and old men, hyperventilating over two men who were actually angels sent from God as an advance party to prepare for the Lord's revival, to tell arrival, to say that, that God is coming in judgment. Yet instead of fearing God, what do they do? They can't help but to think of nothing but sex, 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 sex. And that is very, very contemporary, right? Sex is everywhere in our day. We have to admit it. But as horrible as the incident is in verse 7, allowing sexual immorality to just govern every aspect of our life, even in the face of God's coming judgment, we're going to be honest, that's a common bent for all humanity. One evening, King David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. One evening, Mr. X got up out of his bed and went online. One afternoon, Mrs. Y was checking out Mr. Z for far too long and in a way that was completely, completely evil. So the young men and old men of Sodom are not so unique. They're extreme examples of human nature gone astray. And all through the Bible and all throughout history, we find the same equation, unbelief, will work itself out into sexual immorality. Idolatry will work itself out into sexual immorality. Why? And here's the key here. Because our sexual integrity, our sexual faithfulness in a, in a one-man, one-woman marriage is supposed to be a picture of the total, absolute, loyal faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to His church. Ephesians 5. He will not have any other lovers. So that when people say we must defend the biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman to save our nation, 
Okay, I kind of get it. But for me, that's just way too small of a reason. It's not even a Bible reason. Nations come and go, and I hope we understand that. Nations are a drop in the bucket. But the honor of Christ and his loyalty to his church is the paramount picture of a Christian marriage. And that is what that picture of that marriage is supposed to bring to the world. So that even in our intimacy of marriage, it's not about him and it's not about her. It's about Jesus Christ. So we ought not to be surprised that that where there is promiscuity, there is unbelief. And not to be mean, but unbelief in our age works itself so much out uh, below the belt. Okay, so I've been fiddling around with the golf club too much, right? I need to take a swing. Here's my swing. The Bible consistently describes homosexual practice as a sin, as a rebellion against God's natural order, from which it is both necessary and, thank God, it is possible to be saved. But it is certainly not the only sin. It's certainly not the main sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor the liar, nor the swindler will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, which means homosexual sin is no better or worse than any other rebellion against God's law. Jude is not targeting the worst possible sin here. He's not saying that. Verse 5 makes that clear. Unbelief is the ultimate rebellion. Unbelief marks the whole three examples. Unbelief because the just will live by faith. So there's no need for a witch hunt. Jude is speaking to a context. In the church, unbelief works itself out in sexual perversion, yes. Because there are people in the church who are claiming freedom, that it's okay with God to be, to be sexual, in sexual sin, whether it's mental or actual or homosexual, and there's no need to repent because grace makes it okay. And Jude says, no. Verse 7, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And yes, you'd have to say that these are extreme examples. I mean, over 600,000 Israelites condemned. Lusting angels condemned. Five cities condemned, wiped out. Hence the need to repent and believe. Uh, Repent. Say it. Say what it is. No flinching. I'm a wretched sinner. It's me. It's, It's all me. And Jesus, I need you to save me. You tell me. Again, not to be unkind, you tell me which is worse in the eyes of God. Homosexual relationship or five minutes in our mind with lustful thoughts. Tell me which one is wrong. Worse, excuse me. Both wrong. Which one is worse? Jesus, I need you to save me. It's the reason why you came into the world. Listen to your Bible, John 18, 17. Jesus said to Pilate, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, present reality, I am the worst. John 12 
I came into the world, Jesus says, as light, so that no one who believes in me shall stay in darkness. The loved ones know this and tell anyone who will listen to this. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But it is a grace. It is a grace to be called a child of God through the mercy and merit of Christ. And I do pray and do, do hope that that is what all of us are here this morning. For the just, the righteous, live by faith. A faith that is not alone, but a faith alone in Christ that saves. And I know that you already know this, but just let me remind you, New City Catechism, question number 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human. Joe has been unable to keep the law of God perfectly, but Joe consistently breaks it in thought, in word, in deed. Think it out. The just, the righteous, live by faith. Let's bow together. Thank you for your attention. Father, our minds go immediately to the words of Paul to the Galatian church. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For if righteousness could be gained by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. And I thank you, God, that Jesus Christ did die for our sin, that he did die to make us and keep us in the right with you for all of eternity, that his death and his resurrection is sufficient enough to keep us justified before a holy God forever. And we thank you that heaven will display in an even clearer, more wonderful picture of the great work of atonement that Christ provided for us by his suffering and death to swallow up your wrath on our sin. These are difficult days to live in, Father. I know you know that what makes them so hard is because they're part of life that is so nice and easy and relaxing. And at the same time, the intruders come in and twist everything all your truths. And it's hard to live in this world sometimes. And so we pray for the grace to live well, to live exactly like Jesus would, to say what he would say in every context we're given again and again. And that if we're going to do any boasting, it's going to be about him and what he accomplished for us by his suffering and death at Calvary. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe both now and forevermore. Amen.